This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and also available on iTunes. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. Today we'll talk with Allison Levine about her new book, On the Edge, The Art of High Impact Leadership. Then PW Senior News Editor Calvin Reed will bring us the highlights of the Digital Book World Conference. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly Bestseller List, powered by Nielsen BookScan. So, it's the start of the year, finally. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. The, exactly. Thing, the thing about the bestseller list is that we're always a little bit behind, mm-hmm. uh, and so we're just seeing the things that have been selling well over the past week. Right. But there's definitely some movement here on the fiction list. Uh, at number one, a new number one for the first time in quite some time, we have Sue Monk Kids' The Invention of Wings, and mm. um, this is Kids' third novel. It's set in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, right before the Civil War, uh, and also along an abolitionist lecture circuit in New England. So mm. Kid is the author of The Secret Life of Bees. Certainly, right. we have people have uh, said very positive things about her other books, and um, we find this, our PW Review says that it's very satisfying to read, uh, and bolstered by female mentors, kids, heroines really uh, find their way to achieve some sort of uh, equality as women uh, on their mm. way to helping slaves find equality in a white world. So uh-huh. um, it's an, an interesting parallel there sure. and also very topical. Right, exactly. Yeah, that's, that book's been getting a lot of buzz and, and, and also, you know, coming in at, you know, on, on 12 Years a Slave, another, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the movie, uh, Golden Globe winner. So it's, it's and, uh, and now Oscar nominee. And now Oscar nominee, mm-hmm. exactly, yeah. So I, I think we'll continue seeing a lot of buzz for that. I wouldn't right. be surprised to see that on some award shortlists sure. after uh, the year is done. Uh, at number two, we have Dark Wolf by Christine Fian. Um, this is part of the Dark series, and fans of the series have been waiting for a long time uh, for this book. Like many paranormal series, each book focuses on a different romantic pair, uh, and and these two are Dimitri and Skylar, who have been built up as characters over really more than a decade of fans writing, and now they finally get their turn in the spotlight. Uh, so initial reviews have been pretty positive, I and mean, it's, it's hard when you have a book that's been mm-hmm. anticipated for a long time. Sometimes right. it's very easy to disappoint people, and uh, you know, Fian's last few books have not gotten such a strong response, but this one seems to be doing pretty well. And at number six, we have Stand Up Guy by Stuart Woods. Uh, this is his 28th book featuring Stone Barrington, who's a suave New York City attorney. Um, Woods is reliably turning out about one of these a year. Wow. Um, he fences with federal agents, tangles with thugs, and faces the problem of dealing with $5 million in small bills. Uh, the PW Review says this is the liveliest Barrington novel in some time. Wow. So that's another one that's going to please longtime series fans. Well, for us in nonfiction, uh, we're still kind of riding on the wave of post 
New Year's resolutions. This is a big time sure. for uh, uh, spiritual health, financial health, and healthy health, bodily health. So we've got uh, at number one, which is up from number six. It debuted Shred from Ian K. Smith. That's now at number one. Uh, then we have Rocco Despirito, who who people will remember. He first came on the scene as a restaurateur and cookbook author. And then he started moving his way towards uh, healthy cooking. And now this is an actual diet book. It's a the pound-a-day diet, and that's at number five. And then we have Travis Stark, uh, number eight, the doctor's diet. And just moving up the list just a little bit, we have uh, uh, Allison Levine, who will be our guest. Uh, her book, On the Edge, is number 21 on our list. And at number 28 is uh, fiction writer... Gary Steingart with his memoir, uh, Little Failure, which I wrote a profile of him uh, three weeks ago in Publishers Weekly, and that's at number 28. All right, so really starting to rev up for the year here, and uh, I think it'll be exciting to see what continues moving around on the list, particularly these books that start out slow, maybe an hour gathering some steam now that everybody's kind of back and ready to spend some of that holiday gift money. Right, exactly. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Mountaineer Allison Levine will take us to new heights of leadership, and we'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Allison Levine on the line. She's a mount climber, professor, and the author of On the Edge, The Art of High-Impact Leadership. Allison, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on the show. So tell us about your book and and the concept of The Art of High-Impact Leadership. Well, first of all, the most exciting news I have is that I just hit the New York Times bestseller list yesterday, so I'm super fired up about that. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Basically, the book is a... The book really covers the leadership lessons that I learned while climbing the seven summits, which is the highest peak on each continent, and skiing to both the North and South Pole. And what I learned through my various mountaineering and polar expeditions is that the the lessons from these various extreme environments really have a lot of applicability to not just everyday business environments, but to challenging environments in life's, you know, day-to-day you know, in the day-to-day challenges you face in life. So it's a book of advice on, I guess, pretty much how to overcome life's mountains. Well, well so let's go back to this idea of mountain climbing. So you're the, the, the team captain of the first American women's uh, Mount Everest expedition. What made you want to climb Mount Everest, and what was the preparation like? Well, from the time I was younger, I was always very intrigued by the stories of the early Arctic and Antarctic explorers and the early mountaineers, And I was born with a hole in my heart, so I had some health issues when I was younger. But I had my second heart surgery when I turned 30, and eventually the light bulb went on in my head, and I thought, if I want to know what it's like to be Reinhold Messner and drag a 150-pound sled across 600 miles of Antarctic ice, then I should get out there and do it instead of just reading about it or watching documentary films about it. If I want to know what it was like for Edmund Hillary to climb Everest, and I should get out there and get out, you know, go to the mountains. And obviously, I didn't just wake up one day and go climb Mount Everest. I mean, it took me a period of 12 years to complete the seven summits and skiing to both poles. And I started off on smaller mountains and just 
got out to the mountains every time I had a break from work or a break from school and improved my skills and learned from the people around me and eventually got to a point where I was climbing, you know, Himalayan peaks that were over 8,000 meters. So what was it about mountain climbing that, that interested you? Well, I love the teamwork aspect of it. I think more than anything. I mean, I love being outside, being in the mountains, sleeping under the stars, pushing yourself, you know, taking on challenge. I really like all of that stuff. So you, you learn so much about yourself when you're on an expedition like this, when you have to get by with only the things that you can carry in your backpack. And there's something very empowering about learning that, about learning that all you need to get by, you can carry on your back. So I like being out in these environments where I'm faced with these challenges and I have to figure out how to get myself up the mountain and, of course, back down again. But as I started to mention, I also really like the teamwork aspect of it, and that's a huge challenge to me, too. I love being out there on a team with of diverse people and trying to figure out how am I going to get this team to lock arms and work together when we're in this type of extreme environment when there's a lot of pressure on everybody and there's fear and exhaustion and the elements that are working against you. How are we going to get to the top of this mountain and back down in one piece? And so I, you know, I like the teamwork aspect of it as well. So tell us a little bit about your trip to the Antarctic, where you learned some important things about teamwork and emotional management of a team, not just resource management, but managing the the feelings of the people who are on the team with you. Well, that Antarctic trip was the first expedition I'd been on where I really, really struggled. And I trained as hard as I possibly could for this trip. And I thought, no one is going to show up and be more prepared than Alison Levine. And what I found was that when we hit the ice and started to ski, and we were skiing 15 miles a day in sub-zero temperatures, I was the slowest, weakest person on the team. And I thought, how can this happen? You know, I, I trained, I'm pre- you know, I prepared as much as I could. I'm usually one of the stronger, faster members on the team, and all of a sudden, I'm the slowest, weakest person. And basically, because of my size, I'm five foot four, about 108 pounds, I could not keep up with my teammates who were six foot four, 230 pounds, and could haul a 150-pound sled across the ice more quickly and more efficiently than I could. So no matter how much training I did prior to the climb, it wasn't helping me. And what I learned from that expedition is that if you have a positive attitude and you show that you really want your team to succeed and you're trying as hard as you can, people will be more than happy to help you out. And What my teammates did in order to help me is that they took weight out of my sled and carried it in their own sled, which meant now their sleds were heavier than they should have been just so they could lighten my load and allow me to move faster and keep up with the team. And I was so appreciative of the fact that my team members were willing to do that, that it made me want to work even harder for them. So I figured out a way that I could contribute even with my smaller stature. And what I found is that, you know, they were carrying the weight, they were bigger and stronger, and they could carry the weight more efficiently. But as a smaller person, I could use a short snow shovel more efficiently. So I was the person at night that shoveled the snow barricade around people's tents because these big, tall guys were wrenching their backs trying to use a short snow shovel because at the end of the day, every day, you have to create a snow barricade around your tent to prevent to protect it from the elements so your tent doesn't get blown away. And so I then became the tent barricade maker, which was a way that I could play to my strengths, which was something, you know, I could do where it 
was an advantage to be shorter and lower to the ground. And, and this came about really because you you were pulling your own weight, as it were. I mean, you were really working hard to uh, to overcome your obstacle, which was just the the rate uh, the uh, weight ratio. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, there was no way I was going to overcome the fact that I was smaller and slower. And I have a chapter in the book that talks about how you shouldn't try to overcome your weakness. You simply need to compensate for your weakness, mm-hmm. right? I, I was never going to become bigger and heavier, but I could compensate for that fact by being the person that was willing to shovel more snow than anyone else. And that was my way that I could contribute and add value. What, what really struck me about that anecdote when I was reading in the book was that you and your teammates all basically went into sort of little white lie land. Like your your teammates claimed that you had more on your sled than anyone else did. And that gave them an excuse to take some of the weight. I mean, it was beautiful the way they set it up because they could have said, hey, listen, you're slow, we're tired of waiting for you, we're going to take weight out of your sled so you can keep up with us. But what they did was, and I knew they were doing this because I overheard them talking in their tent the night before. And they were saying, oh, poor Allison, she's really struggling with the weight of her sled. She's so much smaller than everyone else. You know, we got to do something to help her out. She's trying so hard, there's got to be something we can do. So the next day, what they did when they got out of their tent, our team leader, Eric Phillips, said, Hey everybody, I just want to I want to weigh everybody's sled before we take off skiing today. I want to weigh everyone's sled, make sure they're all about even. And so they, you know, one by one, he and my other teammate George picked up an end of each person's sled, which they were very heavy, 150 pounds. All right, let's pick up this one. This one feels good. Okay, put that one down. Now let's pick up the end of this one. All right, this sled feels good. Put it back down. All right, you guys grab, you know, let's grab the end of Allison's sled. Let's weigh that one. And they picked it up, and they picked it up six inches off the ground, dropped it immediately, started clutching their backs, pretending, you know, the the sled was so heavy, and they basically injured themselves just trying to pick it up six inches off the ground. And they said, what is in your sled? This is crazy. You have the the heaviest sled of anybody on this team. We're going to take some weight out of this so we can make this a little more even. I mean, why are you caring so much more than everybody else? And the way they set it up that way was just beautiful because it allowed me to keep my pride intact. And it sent me a very strong message that they valued me as a team member and they wanted me to succeed. And they wanted us to get to the pole as a team. So so let's take this to the work environment. So you were also an associate at Goldman Sachs. I mean, I, I think of someplace like Goldman Sachs is, is cutthroat. I mean, it's one thing to have a team when you're hiking or doing dangerous mountain climbing. But what about in the office space? Is there such a thing as teamwork in the office? Well, it's interesting. And people are always surprised when I, when I tell them this about Goldman because Wall Street is seen as being a very cutthroat environment. But when I was at Goldman, I honestly never experienced more teamwork in any other business environment than what I experienced there. And what I loved about working there, and and this is what I, you know, what I look for in teammates, whether I'm, you know, it's a mountaineering expedition, a polar expedition, or just in a in any kind of business venture. I want people who are going to go to the mat to deliver, and that's what I found at Goldman. I loved the fact that people delivered whatever it was they said they were going to deliver. They delivered it on time and in the manner that they promised it to you. So if someone had to stay up the entire night to get a project finished, they did that. And you just, you knew when someone said they were going to get something done that they did it. And I really appreciated that type of 
clutch player mentality that they had at the firm. And I think, you know, every, every firm should really strive to have people that are clutch players, people that you know are going to deliver when they commit to something. So, so what's easier to lead, a mountain climbing team or, or a team of bankers, say? <laughs> I think it might be easier to lead a mountain climbing team. <laughs> so, so what have you gleaned from mountain climbing that, that is, is useful for, for us in, in, in our daily work? Well, I think one of the most important lessons that I learned in my experiences in the mountains, and I write about this throughout the book, is that everybody needs to understand that they are in a leadership position. And leadership has nothing to do with title or tenure, where you work, how many people report to you, how big of a budget you oversee. Leadership is about realizing that you have a responsibility to not only move forward with the mission of the team, but to look out for the people on either side of you. So we all need to do that, whether it's in the workplace, in our homes, with our families, in our communities, you know, this applies to politics and government. Everyone needs to realize they're in a leadership position. And if you're in the middle of Antarctica and something happens to the designated team leader, it could be days, weeks, even months before any type of help can reach you. So everybody else on the team needs to be able to step up and move forward with the mission. So everyone's in a leadership position. That's one of the main themes in the book. The other thing I talk about is that in general, our society is not very failure tolerant, which is really too bad because a lack of failure tolerance really stifles progress and innovation and prevents people from taking risks. When you're on a mountaineering expedition and you fail to reach the summit, that really is not a huge failure, right? Not coming back from the trip alive is the failure. Not getting to the summit, not reaching that goal, that's okay because you learn from it, you take that knowledge and all that information and that experience and you come back better the next time around. And I think it's important to give people the freedom to fail. And as long as they come back from it stronger the next time, that failure can be, you know, very valuable learning experience. And do you think in the workplace that people are willing to give their colleagues room to fail? I don't. I don't think people are willing to do that. And it's interesting because uh, there's, I'm on a board with a guy named Pete Dawkins, who is uh, one of the most amazing leaders I've ever met. He's a West Point graduate. He was first in his class at West Point. He was a Rhodes Scholar, a Heisman Trophy winner, and a general in the Army. And back when Pete Dawkins was a captain, he wrote an article for Infantry Magazine called The Freedom to Fail. And he talked about the fact that we make, it's, it's, we make a mistake when we only hold people with these perfect resumes in high esteem. And we think that people with these flawless track records are the superstars. When really... It's the people who are out there taking the hits and stumbling along the way who are often the people who are taking on the most risk and who are really pushing their limits. And sometimes people who have a perfect track record are people who haven't really taken on a lot of risk. And look, if you think about the names Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzig Norgay, the first guys to reach the summit of Mount Everest, everybody knows their names, right? First guys on the top of Mount Everest. But there were dozens of people that tried before Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay. And, of course, no one knows any of their names because they didn't make it to the top. But I mean, Hillary and Norgay absolutely benefited from the 411 that came from these failed expeditions. So we got to look at failure 
as paving the way to success, not necessarily as a setback. Now, you mentioned West Point, where you're an adjunct professor. Um, what led you to teach at a military academy? I ended up joining the, the part-time faculty at West Point several years ago when I met the head of the Department of Behavioral Sciences and Leadership, which at the time was a guy named Tom Kolditz. He's uh, now a retired general, and he runs the leadership department at Yale School of Management. But uh, he was a colonel at the time. Uh, colonel Kolditz heard me speak at a conference at Duke University. He heard me speaking about leadership and gave me his card and said, you know, if you ever need anything, you look me up. He said, I really liked what you had to say about leadership. It's really different than the typical leadership stuff we hear. And then a few years later, I was actually trying to enlist in the Army because I just my whole life felt that I should serve my country. And 42 was the age limit for the Army. I was 42 at the time. So I was trying to enlist in the Army and was told I was too old, that I had to enlist before my 42nd birthday. And I had no idea it had to be before my 42nd birthday. So I actually had saved Tom Kolditz's card, and I got in touch with him, and I emailed him and said, hey, I met you several years ago. I don't know if you remember me, but you said if I ever needed your help to look you up, I'm trying to enlist in the Army. They're telling me I'm too old. Can you help me? Do you know anyone that might be able to pull some strings for me so I could get around this age limit? And he responded right away and said, of course I remember you. I actually wrote about you in my book because he wrote a, he wrote a leadership book, fabulous book called In Extremist Leadership. And he said, if you want to do something to help the Army, come teach in my department at West Point. He said, I think the cadets could really benefit from your point of view on leadership. It's unique and different. It's different from what they hear because they hear so much about military leadership. And this would give them a different take on it and a different perspective. And so that's how I ended up on the part-time faculty at West Point. So speaking of different perspectives, you, you undergo and undertake all of these pursuits where women are not very prominent or not very common. I, I suspect there are not a lot of women out there skiing to the Antarctic. And um, also, uh, only, only recently have women really become more or less equal in the military and in the business world. So how has that uh, affected your approach to leadership and your experiences as a leader? It's interesting because in these various extreme environments that I go to, whether it's high mountains or polar environments, really what people focus on is your, you know, your skills, your capability, and your competence. Competence is really the number one most important thing because when you're in these environments, it really doesn't matter how funny or charismatic you are or how interesting you are. What matters is can you get the job done? Can you perform in those types of extreme environments? And I'm finding that that really is carrying over more to other environments as well, whether it's different areas of sports or the business world. People really are starting to focus more on the ability to get the job done versus, you know, gender or, you know, whether it's race, skin color, sexual orientation, whatever it is, I feel like things are becoming more and more equal. And I mean, obviously, we still have a ways to go in a lot of areas because things aren't always equal. But I am finding that competence, if you can display competence, you know, your skills, that's really what's going to get you further than anything else. One of the things you talk about in the book is this concept of emotional intelligence, which is also, I've heard, described as more of a, a feminine trait than a masculine trait, maybe. How, tell us a little bit about that concept and how it integrates with your ideas on leadership. 
well, I've got it. One of the, the chapters and one of the things I get the most comments on is I have this chapter about embracing. I you know, can't use the word on the radio, but for we'll just call it jerks. When Sometimes you have to embrace jerks. <laughs> <laughs> Starts with an A. I won't say the word. You know, uh, CC doesn't care about our, our podcast that goes up on our website. Oh, you can, I can say asshole. You, okay. you can use whatever so, words you want. <laughs> there's a chapter in the book on the importance of embracing assholes. And it doesn't mean that you should embrace people who treat people poorly or who are rude. But the point is that sometimes when we interact with people... They might be a little abrasive. They might say something that offends us. We might think that they don't, you know, they don't communicate well or they rub us the wrong way. And it's really easy to write that person off as an asshole. You know what? That guy's kind of an asshole. I don't really want to deal with him. But when you have a high level of emotional intelligence, you learn that you have to dig a little bit deeper and than just what's on the surface. And in my book, I use the example of Phil Jackson coaching Dennis Rodman, right? So let's just forget about Dennis Rodman in North Korea for a minute. Let's just think about him on the, on the hardwood, right, as a basketball player. He was perhaps, you know, the greatest defensive player in the history of the NBA. He was inducted into the Hall of Fame. And there were many coaches that didn't want to deal with Rodman because of his antics. Oh, the guy's kind of an asshole. Like, what's with all the crazy, like, piercings and the fluorescent hair and the tutu and kicking a cameraman? And, you know, who wants to deal with that? But Phil Jackson was really the guy who dug deeper into Dennis Rodman and took the time to get to know him as a person, not just as a player on his team, but as a person. And he figured out what was going on in Dennis Rodman's head, and he understood some of the reasons that Rodman behaved the way that he did. And because he went to those lengths, he was able to get – superior performance out of Rodman and he he understood that he needed to treat him differently and when you have that level of emotional intelligence what you realize is that you need to treat different people on your team differently you need to treat them all fairly but that doesn't mean treating them all the same and for example Dennis Rodman was allowed to come to pregame practices later than the rest of the team now, Dennis Rodman was also fined for every time he showed up late, right? Phil Jackson fined him, so he had to pay money for showing up late. So, therefore, he wasn't getting off scot-free, but that was the system that Phil Jackson worked out with Dennis Rodman. Hey, you want to come late to practice? You can, but you're going to pay money. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, he treated Dennis Rodman differently than he treated the other players, but it was also fairly because, he, you know, he made Dennis Rodman literally pay for being late all the time. Wow. Well, we've been talking with Allison Levine. You can find her book, On the Edge, in stores right now. Allison, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Senior News Editor Calvin Reed takes us on a tour of Digital Book World, so stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from one of the editors at Publishers Weekly, and today PW Senior News Editor Calvin Reed is here to tell us about the highlights of digital book world. Hi, Calvin. Hey, you guys. So Uh, how was it out in Las Vegas, huh? (laughs) You know, Las Vegas would have been nice. Uh, But no, Midtown Manhattan. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The Sheridan, although a little bit of... Minor news. Uh, after five years at Sheridan, it will be uh, Digital Book World 
2015 will be at the New York Hilton. So uh, a small change. But actually, uh, the five years of digital book world actually sort of has marked some of the most tumultuous years in book publishing uh, as the industry comes to grip uh, with uh, the digital transition and the total disruption of its, uh, you know, 100 years of doing business one way before uh, Amazon.com showed up. So this year's Digital Book World was sort of a combination of looking back uh, at the the road traveled and uh, to some extent sort of assessing where everybody is Mm -hmm. uh, in a sort of, you know, let's not say post-Amazon because Amazon hasn't gone anywhere, but certainly uh, maybe a post um, uh, neurotic hysterical reaction to Amazon, period. Uh, so we're, we're kind of mid-apocalyptic. You could say that, yes. <laughs> yes. So we're transitioning from total apocalypse to some lesser version of it. <laughs> uh, uh, that said, uh, the joking aside, um, in, 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 in many ways, uh, we're looking at a, a new transformed publishing landscape that's far more entrepreneurial, um, that while obviously dominated, uh, book selling is dominated in some ways by Amazon, um, you see all of the big publishers, uh, quote unquote, the dinosaurs, uh, looking at their businesses hard, trying to look back over the last five years, try to see where they are. I think um, uh, one of the things that the Mike Shatskin, one of the, the DBW organizers, uh, talked about, uh, he sort of painted a before and after picture of the industry um, uh, that, you know, um, this was um, uh, an industry that started with six tr- big traditional publishers. Now uh, it faces as much competition from niche and non-publishers uh, as the um, self-publishing uh, uh, category expands and become a powerful factor, uh, as it does from its traditional uh, competitors. Um, uh, he asked some interesting questions. Uh, are, um, are publishers of novels in the same business as publishers of art books and kid books? Um, publishers are looking, are desperately looking for new ways to get books in front of uh, viewers, uh, readers. Uh, and he talked about a landscape that now features essentially a single dominant e-tailer, a single dominant uh, physical retailer, and a single dominant publishing house in the newly merged uh, Penguin Random House. So uh, it was was a time for looking back. Interesting. Yeah. And and on the looking forward front, does anyone have any sense of where we're going to be another five years from now? And is, or is it still just just a mysterious fog? Well, it's it's the fog is clearing, but but what what remains from the fog is really a road of uh, experimentation, uh, adaptation, uh, learning from the last five years, and a focus on. Um, I guess you could call it I mean, certain um, principles that have taken place in the digital area, in the digital era. Uh, direct connection with your, with your, with your, uh, with your marketplace, uh, with readers, uh, big data. Uh, all of this digital technology is generating an enormous amount of, of data. Uh, uh, some of it dubious uh, and privacy threatening. Mm-hmm. Uh, other it, uh, the a mother load of information that uh, book publishers have never had or never had access to. Uh, you know, Shaskin painted a picture while for many years, you know, publishers are sort of chafed because Amazon gets a lot of data but doesn't necessarily turn it all over. But what's happened is there are other we- means of publishers getting data uh, about their users um, without necessarily selling directly. Though, in fact, publisher selling directory is, directly is one of the issues that um, was discussed at the, um, uh, you know, at, at DBW, as well as new business models um, 
in particular the subscription mm-hmm. ebook model, uh, right. which, which uh, is getting a lot of discussion. Although you know, seems to be meeting a you know a certain amount of um, uh, skepticism from. Well, well talk to us size. about that model, the subscription ebook model. Well, it's it's you know this is something that has sort of been floating around for a while, but it seems to be this is the year where there are been a number of startups uh, and a number of fairly powerful startups that you know have raised a level of discussion and actually kind of there's a practical effect. There's some businesses out here functioning that we can take a look at. I mean, if you want to look at the history, you can go uh, very quickly to something like um, Safari Books, which is uh, a subscription ebook and actually video and some other content service launched by O'Reilly Media. Um, uh, you know, I can't remember exactly, but it's a number of years ago, but they've been kind of in the forefront, focused mostly on IT and business titles. But it's it's a, a fit, growing business. They have they have tens of thousands of items of content. They make money. They send out big checks to the publishers whose uh, content is, is in their data pool. Uh, and uh, as um, Andrew Safikas, the, uh, the CEO of Safari, has told me a number of times, they've got data to show that one of the big fears of publishers with subscription, uh, subscription services, uh, that their, their print sales will be cannibalized. He says it's a myth. Uh, mm. So that's it. That's it. In the last uh, year or two, there's been startups. Oyster uh, is one of the ones you hear about very often. Uh, uh, another uh, venture called um, eReader, which has changed its name to Entitle, is out there. And Scribd, the document sharing um, right. uh, platform, has added a subscription ebook service to its offering. So you can pay a fee uh, to, to Scribd, and you get access to a database. Of, they don't say exactly how big uh, their subscription book database is. I mean, they, they have millions of documents on, on the site. But with a subscription access, you have full text access to a variety of backlist uh, titles from big publishers. Um, uh, and all of these services are backlist, by the way. Publishers are not haven't quite got over the notion that they're going to Put the, give someone an all you can read model mm. uh, uh, for well, uh, for in this case, uh, I think um, Scribd is eight ninety nine a month, right. and uh, Oyster I believe is nine ninety nine a month, uh, and uh, there are other price points out there. Now there have been other subscription services. I mean, I, I essentially, I mean, Disney offers that in many ways. You know, on the comic side, Marvel um, Marvel Comics has a as a uh, an online subscription service where you can you pay a relatively small fee and you get access to thousands of back issues of classic Marvel comics. So this is it's just been around for a while. It seems to be hitting critical mass now, as you know, because we're in a period where new business models are being embraced. Uh, if for no other reason, to give it a try and see if it, you know, run it up the flag and see if anybody salutes. <laughs> but this doesn't sound all that new to me. It sounds like a library. Well, uh, as one of the, that's actually one of the criticisms that was actually <laughs> announced about. But it's it. a library you pay for. It's a library that you pay for. Um, uh, now you, you could also make the case um, it's a little different. Um, uh, uh, or, or put it this way, uh, you could make the case that it's uh, positioned itself as a mode that uh, publishers have never been too crazy about. They're not so crazy about uh, libraries these days, especially when it comes to ebook lending. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, a subscription service, you know, is kind of a big 
ebook lending program. Right. <laughs> right, right. And and we had we had Andrew Albanese on the show last week, and he was saying that he felt that that relations between publishers and libraries were kind of thawing out, and maybe getting a little more cordial after after a period of of mutual side eyeing. But uh, definitely, yeah. But I, I it, you, it sounds like you think we still have a ways to go. I I think that uh, I think that's an accurate uh, description of where the situation is a thawing uh, of a previously not very warm relationship uh, on this topic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think um, that transitional sense uh, exists for this brand new business or or, uh, or at least these new ventures. Uh, there is some skepticism of it, and but there is an interest in seeing what, uh, where they will go. And certainly, as one of the publishers said on a panel yesterday, if our customers want it, uh, we'll give it to them. Uh, um, I should also mention uh, that uh, DBW... Uh, Amazon was a, a kind of a shadow topic at, at this year's DBW, as it is almost in almost every uh, publishing gathering. Sure. Um, but really, on Wednesday morning, they just pulled out all the stops, and it was all Amazon all the time for the morning session. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all pretense aside, this is what people wanted to talk about: uh, both looking at Amazon's past and its impact on the book industry, and where the industry was going with Amazon in the future. So. There was, in my opinion, a kind of refreshing sense that uh, enough with the complaining about Amazon, uh, enough with the complaining about the uh, Department of Justice uh, mm-hmm. in the Apple um, ebook price fixing uh, trial. Uh, it's time for publishers to, to compete, to innovate, uh, and that that's the best way to deal with you know the um, market share monster that is Amazon.com. So Brad Stone, the author of um, The Everything Store, uh, mm-hmm. the popular bestseller that's been out here, he was on hand, uh, as well as Joe Esposito, a uh, management consultant, really kind of uh, talking about uh, what's been happening with Amazon, where it's going, and what publishers uh, can do, um, because Amazon's not changing its business model. Right. <laughs> uh, they're relentless. Uh, and they, it's not going anywhere. It's not going anywhere. Uh, they're going to continue to pursue market share in any way they possibly can. Uh, they're going to, what they did in the book publishing industry, we know they're doing it in other areas, but that doesn't mean uh, that they're going to turn their gaze away from the book industry. They will continue doing it they, as, they, as they always have. And um, publishers need to come up with a business strategies uh, that are both legal uh, and can, um, can make a dent. All right. Well, thank you very much, Calvin. It's always great to have you on the show. The pleasure's all mine. Thank you, Calvin. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. You can find this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and on iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. So check the site every week for a brand new episode, giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show, 